Welcome to all those joining us for the shiur today. Usually, this shiur is right now on the topic of Chaye Muharan, the life story of Rabbi Nachman. However, today, because it's the Sunday before Chanukah, number one, Chanukah begins this year, Thursday night, there's going to be the first candle. And in addition, the fact that today is the yard site of one of the giants of the Breslov movement in the previous generation, I'd like to dedicate the shir today to those two topics, Bezrat Hashem. First, first we mention that the shir is Le'ilu Nishmat, Reb Elio Chaim, Reb Konez Kalman, whose yard site is today. And I want to give a special personal thanks to my incredible friend, Eddie Shabbat, for putting this together, as always. Hi. Eddie Shabbat and friends, and, and our close friend, Nachman Asulin, whose facility we're using, this shul, this wonderful shul in Allenhurst, and who's always been a pillar in, in everything good that we're doing, Baruch Hashem. This rabbi, Rabbi Yochaim Rosen, was born in Poland, was orphaned at a young age, father passed away, and at 12 or 13 years old, he applied for the Lomza Yeshiva, which was one of the top yeshivot in Poland at the time. The youngest age they accepted anybody was 17, 17, 18, and he's 13 or so. And they looked at him and said, you know, go back to grade school. And he said, I'm not going back anywhere. I'm here, test me. And they tested him and they accepted him with open arms. They saw that he was really very qualified to join the school and he did very, very well. And then at about the age 17, 18, I believe, he discovered one of Rabbi Nachman's books, got hooked and traveled from Poland to Ukraine, to Uman, to join the Breslov Hasidim there. And while there, he was besides growing in Torah and Mitzvot, he, the, the, the Mishnah tells us in Perki Avot that the world stands on three pillars, Torah, Avodah, and Gemilut Chasadim. Gemilut Chasadim means looking out for the other person. And because he had some contacts in the United States, he would receive packages. This is during the Soviet time, during Soviet, Soviet communism times. He would receive packages to and he would distribute it among the poor people there, all of his friends, this, that, you know, whatever he could, whether it was food or clothing, different things. At one point, he and most of his friends got caught by the KGB. They got caught for other things. They got caught for spreading Judaism under, com under communist rule, which was a, a major, major crime. And he specifically had a double problem, the issue of Judaism, plus committing this terrible crime of, of, of distributing, receiving things from out of the country and, and distributing. At one point, he was called in for an interrogation with by the KGB. And one of the people, one of the leading rabbis in Brussels at the time was there also. <clears throat> they brought them both in. And they said to the other rabbi, you know, you think he's your friend, Rebbe Yechayim. You don't know that people send things to him to give to you. And 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 I'm sure he probably didn't give it, didn't give you anything. The guy said, that's not true. He did give me. Not realizing that he's incriminating him. That's what they wanted to hear, you know. The, the interrogator walked out of the room and Rabbi Yechaim looks at this rabbi. His name was Reb Matis, who was one of the super giants in Breslau at that time, a, a Talmud Chacham, a Tzadik. And Rabbi Yechaim says to him, you're trying to get me killed? You know. <laughs> And the rabbi thought for a moment, and he got it. He realized what this was all about. And he, he looked at him, and he said, who knows? Maybe this is your ticket to Eretz Yisrael. Maybe this is your... He's looking at him, this is my ticket to the cemetery. You know, they're, 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 you know. sure enough, sure enough, the rabbi is incriminated, and they decide they don't want to try him in some little hick town. They want to send him to Moscow. They, they want him to be tried there in a court in Moscow, and he and his friend get sent to Moscow and interrogated and everything, and it, and it looks like they're going to be hung. It looks like they're going to be hung, you know, for spreading Judaism and everything. And the night before this was supposed to take place, 
these two rabbis are in jail in Moscow, and Rabbi Yechayim would say years later, what would I give to have a night like that again? Meaning, that night he thought was the last night of his life, and he had small children. He said, I wasn't, my main concern wasn't myself. My concern was if they kill me, if they hang me tomorrow, my kids are orphans. They're going to grow up in the Soviet Union without a daddy, you know, without a father. What chance do they have of, of retaining any connection to Judaism? And he said that night was spent crying and, and screaming, screaming, silent scream to Hashem, pleading with Hashem to save him. At one point in the middle of the night, a guy comes in and he looks like a uh, an executive, you know, Dred. and he says to them, are you rebellion? Are you Elio Chaim? Are you there? Yes. He said, I'm here to get you out. I'm going to get you out of here. And they're figuring, oh, this is another ploy. Who knows what they, you know, who knows what kind of tricks, you know, because this is what they do there. When they interrogate them, all kinds of, to get all kinds of information from them. He says, let me tell you my story. My father was a religious man. I'm Jewish. My father's a religious man. My father was Breslau, and he knew that he couldn't talk to me about religion. I was—he was taken in. The communists, you know, really had ways of programming people, you know, to 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 go with their path. So he never spoke to me about religion. And before he passed away, he said one thing to me: "Should you ever, should any Breslavs ever fall into your hands, please do what you can to help them." And he says, this is my opportunity to fulfill the will of my father. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get both of you guys out of here. You'll see. And sure enough, he did. He did. He had some kind of, you know, he was obviously some kind of higher. He was able to do it. They were released. And he told them, leave. You know, go. Go. Sure enough, they, they left. And they realized that even with this protects everything, a day from now, a week from now, somebody could wake up and decide that they want they want to look for these guys again. So they immediately made reservations on a boat to get out of the Soviet Union. A day or two into their travel, they found out that they came looking for them. You know, Soviet also got, but by that time they were out. They made it to Israel. They arrived in Israel. This is in the nineteen in the nineteen thirties, I believe early 1930s. And this rabbi got to Israel and he realized, he saw that Breslov at that time was a very, very small community. They didn't have any synagogue or anything. And he immediately started thinking, what do we do? What do you have to do? You know, he was action. And sure enough, they rented a place, et cetera, et cetera. And in those days, there were maybe 30, 40 Breslovers in, in Israel and maybe in the world, in the world. But he understood that it's not going to remain this way. P.S. He made plans to go to the United States for like six months. You know, fundraisers go for 10 days, two weeks, three weeks. And they think they're, they're, they're doing Hashem the greatest favor. I'm leaving my family for two weeks, you know, left for months to go. And sure enough, was successful. Came back, not with millions of dollars or anything, but they acquired a small piece of land, where there was a hotel, the whole story, small PS. Today, when you go to Yerushalayim, in Me'asharim, the large building, the main central building of Breslov in the state, in, in Israel, is the building that he, he started doing the fundraising for. And he met Rabbi Rosenfeld at the time, and he joined forces with him, and both of them together put that building together, you know, and Baruch Hashem today, that building is operating 24-7, you know, three floors, night kolel, morning kolel, kids. They built, besides, in addition to a shul, two floors of a shul, uh, the, the main rest of shul in, in Yerushalayim, they added another three floors for a cheder, an, an elementary school, which was paying rent for years and struggling, struggling. They said, no, 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 if the engineers say it's okay, Put it on top of the show, and sure enough, they did. And it's it's a factory generating Torah mitzvot in a whole day. And, and this rabbi was the one who the major push for it at that time. Chanukah is coming. The word Chanukah means chinuch, education, and especially Chanukah also means beginning. When a person moves into a new home, they make a Chanukah tabayit to initiate a new home. 
So I'll share some things that I heard from this rabbi that are very, very pertinent to Hanukkah Chinuch, this concept of Chinuch. There's a discussion among the rabbis <clears throat> if a child who's first learning how to, how to read Hebrew or anything, and you teach them how to make berachot, one of them berachan, food. The Gemara says that if a person takes a drink or eats something without making a beracha, it's stealing because everything belongs to Hashem. It's, it's not yours. It's not mine. It belongs to Hashem. And Hashem is willing to share it with us if we acknowledge that it's His. How do we do that? By saying, Baruch atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam Shehakol So very often people try to teach little children, three-year-old, four, you know, to make berachot. Now, the child usually at that age doesn't understand what he's saying. He doesn't understand, he doesn't know the meaning of the words, but he's saying the blessing. So there are some people that say that you're not allowed to answer amen to that kind of blessing because it isn't really, you know. And there are others that say, yes, he can. I was once with a rabbi, Rabbi Yochaim, and whenever I was with him, I was always thinking, what can I ask him? What can I ask him? You know, to have an opportunity to ask an encyclopedia of Torah, you know. And this discussion had taken place a short while before, so I decided I'm going to ask him. I said, Rabbi, can I ask a question? When a small child makes a beracha, are you allowed to answer amen to their blessing? And he looks at me and he says, why not? And I said, because he doesn't understand what he's saying. And he looks at me and says, and you do understand what you're saying? And he wasn't saying this to be insulting. He wasn't saying... He was saying this to get us to realize when we say Hashem Elokeinu Mel, Hashem who is the creator of the world, do we understand what that means? Do we have any idea what that means? So therefore, no problem answering Amen. But just the, the sweetness, the way I analyze it, it's 30 years later and I remember it like it was today because it was given over with such a genuine sweetness and, and, and straightness. There are two stories he would give classes. He spoke Yiddish. And because my parents are Holocaust survivors, when we grew up, they would speak Yiddish to us. We would answer them in English. So I knew Yiddish. I was able to sit at the classes with my friend, Rabbi Goldman, Rabbi Solomon Goldman, who was raised in a community, didn't know a word of Yiddish, but picked it up one summer, just sitting next to me with his incredible brain, picked it up very quickly. You know, he would ask me questions, you know, after the class, what's this word, what's that word? And we heard incredible things from this rabbi. <clears throat> Three short stories, and then we'll get more into the holiday of Hanukkah. There was a, a rabbi who grew up in a, in a pretty wealthy home, <clears throat> and he ended up marrying the daughter of one of the students of the Baal Shem Tov who was extremely poor. Now, in those days, in the Ashkenaz community, in, in the Soviet Union, in Russia, how did you define, how could you tell what status a person was? By the borscht that they ate. Borscht is a certain kind of soup, which is made from beets and other vegetables, and a piece of chicken, a piece of meat, you know, and it's, it's very flavorful, it's enjoyable. The wealthy people would cook up a gigantic pot, tons of vegetables in it, a couple of pieces of meat floating around in it, and it's, it's delicious. The less wealthy people, the pot would be, again, a giant pot, a lot of vegetables in it, maybe a little piece of chicken, and maybe not, or some chicken bones, you know, that's it. The poor people would cook up a large pot of water, and they would buy the vegetables after, after, right before the store was closing and they had the vegetables that nobody else bought, nobody else wanted to buy, they would buy a couple of those vegetables and put that in this big pot of water and that was their borscht, that was their soup. So this rabbi who grew up in a, a pretty well-to-do home was used to eating it. The first day that he comes to his father-in-law's house and they put a plate of soup in front of him and he looks at this, it's water, it's basically water, with a couple of rusty vegetables in it, you know, the, and he looks at it and he pictures, can't do it. He doesn't, can't do it. Just can't do it. And the rabbi, his father-in-law, looks at him and sees and understands what's going on, and he says, "Let's switch plates. Try mine. Try mine. It's the same suit coming out of the same pot, same suit." But now the father-in-law gave him his plate, you know, that he had to eat from. 
and says, try it. He takes a spoon and he's, he's cringing, puts it into his mouth. And he said he never, ever tasted anything that good in his entire life. And the rabbi said to him afterwards, so you see, it's not the food. It's the one who's eating it. It's the one who's eating it. We know that when the Jews were in the desert, Hashem gave us man to eat. Man was like this kind of thing, white seeds, some kind of white seeds, you know, that the, but it was a miracle food that could taste like anything you wanted it to taste, just about anything at all. If you wanted it to be steak, if you wanted it to be uh, vanilla, strawberry, yogurt, anything you wanted it to taste, it could taste like what you wanted to. And the Torah tells us about this miracle food that the Jews had a few thousand years ago in the desert. Why does the Torah tell us about this? The Torah is not a history book and it's not a storybook. Everything that's written in the Torah has to have an application to us. Has to have a Is there such a thing as man today? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Where? Is it in Walmart? Is it in Shapa? Where, where do I get this stuff? The answer is, it, the Torah tells us, when they saw this food coming down from heaven, they said, manhu. What is it? Man means what, who, it. What, it, what is this? Kiloyadu mahu, because they, they didn't know what this was. They never saw anything like this. This is coming down from heaven. One of the rabbis writes, Rabbi Freumel writes, the words man, who, spell the word emuna. Emuna. When a person has emuna, when a person believes that Hashem created the world, Hashem is running the world, and Hashem gave me this cup of coffee. Hashem gave it to me. And this is what Hashem wants me to have right now. But suddenly I changed my mind. I don't want coffee. I want a, a milkshake. If this is what Hashem gave me, then this is milkshake. This, is, this could be anything I want it to be. Anything I want it to be. If a person has the right emunah, then they know that whatever I have, my jacket, my house, my wife, my husband, this is what Hashem gave me. This is the best, best thing I could possibly have. It's the best thing. It's the right thing for me, and it's the best thing for me. This is emunah. And this is what the rabbi was showing his son-in-law, the same plate coming out of the same pot. One person could eat it, and it tastes horrific. Another person could be eating the same thing, and it tastes like Gan Eden. It's coming from the, the holiest, best place in the world. And again, the... What does this have anything to do with me? The answer is definitely yes. Every single one of us could do this if we have this emunah, genuine faith in Hashem, that Hashem is the creator, everything Hashem does is good. Hashem knows exactly what I need. And this, if this is what Hashem has given me now, if this is the jacket that I'm wearing, if this is the food that's in front of me, then this is the best. It's the best. There could be nothing better for me right now, that kind of thing. person has that kind of attitude, you could imagine that their life is, is a happy life, a healthy life. Two other stories that he told were, there, was, there were these two rabbis who were students of the Baal Shem Tov, famous rabbis, Rebbe Melech, Reb Zusha, who are very knowledgeable in Torah, and like, like all people who study Torah know, that when the Jewish people are suffering, we're told Hashem is also suffering. When the Jewish people are in exile, Kabiachol, Hashem's wife, is the Shekhinah, the divine spirit of Hashem, is in exile with us. And there were rabbis, there were people at different times who decided to take on suffering, suffering upon themselves, to share in the pain of the Shekhinah, to share in the pain of the Divine Spirit. These two rabbis who had students, they were very respected and loved in their communities, decided they're taking a year off, sabbatical. What kind of sabbatical? They're going to walk from city to city. They're going to dress up like beggars. Nobody's going to know that they're rabbis or anything, so nobody's going to treat them with any respect. They're going to take upon themselves this suffering, this galut, in order to share the pain and suffering of the Shekhinah and hopefully to, to take away from the pain and suffering of other Jews. By their take, these rabbis who don't deserve to suffer, they didn't do anything to, 
by taking it upon themselves, they're going to be able to lessen the suffering of the Jewish people. And they did this. One day, a very hot summer day, they've been walking for hours and totally exhausted, wiped out. And they sit down on the side of a road under a tree to rest, to, to exhausted, wiped out. They hear a wagon coming up the road, horses, wagon, and they hear a guy singing, you know, a, a Polish or Russian, Russian guy who's leading the wagon singing. And they see in the distance, it's loaded with hay, three, four levels of hay. And the guy's at the top and he's driving slowly because he knows if this thing tips at all and anything goes tumbling down, he's got to climb down three floors to pick it up and put it back. You know, he doesn't want to do that. Suddenly his singing changes to cursing, screaming. Why? Because one of the wheels hit a rock and a big bale of hay tumbled down and he's got to climb all the way down and put it back up. It's a whole job. And he sees these two rabbis sitting under the tree there and he figures they can save him. They can help him. So he yells out to them in, in the language, Polish, Russian, Jew, come here, help me, throw it up to me, you know, toss it up. They look at him, they look at each other, they look at him, and they say, can't, can't. They're totally wiped out, no energy, no strength at all. He gives a scream at the top of his lungs, can, you can, you don't want, you don't want to, you can do it, you don't want to. And these rabbis wrote, that with all the, all the Torah that they had learned from all their rabbis previous years, all of the Musar that they heard, nothing affected them for the rest of their lives like this scream of this non-Jew saying, you can, you don't want to. And this applies to us, and it applies to our children and our grandchildren especially. We're living in times where that word can't is misused unfortunately very very often uh, parents will prepare a meal for the kids a beautiful meal a gorgeous meal they had to go first of all they had to earn the money to buy the stuff then they had to go shopping to go pick the stuff up and then bring it and set up set up the whole beautiful beautiful meal and the mother is cooking and serving and everything and the meal's over and they ask one of the kids could you could you help us bring this stuff into the kid and the kid says no and the kid says, no, could, could you could imagine? You, is that possible? Is such a thing humanly possible? Where's, where's an, I, is that rational? Does that make any sense at all? The answer is, in today's time, yes. There's a dirty word called entitlement, a dirty word, a disease that children suffer from, children who are brought up without being taught that life is not a free ride. It's not all about parents give, 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 and kids take, take, take. That's not a healthy, that, that's not a relationship that could work. And a person like, sure it works. I get away, I don't have to do anything. Wait, wait till you get a little older and you find out that that's not how the way, everything isn't free. Maybe in mommy and daddy's house, it's free, but out there it's not free. And if you're not programmed to know to do, that you got to you earn, to earn, to earn a living, to earn help, that somebody should be willing to help, that kind of thing, you're lost. We have hundreds or thousands of kids committing suicide, committing, taking their lives, and others who are living, who are, who are in a worse situation than that. The people who commit suicide, they end their life, okay, so it's over. There are kids who are living and living worse than that because they were never taught to give. They were never taught to give, to do. And, and life, life, a healthy life, a happy life. People think that the best thing in the world is to receive. Now Hanukkah, Hanukkah presents. Which kid doesn't want Hanukkah presents, birthday gift, lahavdil, Xmas gift? This is the season of gifts. People think that that's the greatest pleasure in life. They don't know that there's something even more enjoyable than that, which is giving a gift. The privilege of being able to give is a hundred times more enjoyable than taking. Taking is, if a person has an iota of decency in them, taking is uncomfortable a little. This The Gemara says, Man A person who's eating food that's not theirs, they didn't do anything to earn it or to deserve it, they're embarrassed to look into the face of 
I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm, not, I'm a cherry case. No cherry case. I have I, I can move. I can walk. I can do anything. I'm no cherry case. If a person is taking and taking and not giving, they're a charity case. They're a cha- they're helpless. They're nothing. They're nothing. Chas v'shalom. So the, the privilege of being able to give is an incredible, incredible, important thing in life. Another story was about Kaiser Wilhelm. During World War I, one of the leaders in Europe was Kaiser Wilhelm who was known to be very good to his officers, to his army, to his people. One day he's on a ship with a lot of his soldiers and everything, and somebody starts screaming. One of the soldiers fell overboard. He's in the water. And he's throwing his hands up, save me, save me. Kaiser Wilhelm runs over to one of the soldiers and says, give me a gun. Give me a a gun right now. Grabs the gun, goes over to the side of the ship, and he yelled, and the guy's screaming, he can't swim, can't swim. He says, I'm going to count to three. If you don't get over to the side of this ship, you're fish food. You're going to be fish food. And he starts, one. And the soldier, everybody's looking. And the guy's dancing, you know, two. And somehow the guy starts throwing himself, somehow throwing himself till he gets a little bit close to the ship, right away they throw a rope out, they pull him in and they take him on board. The soldiers are talking about to themselves, what in the world got into him? We never saw him behave like this. He's a nice guy, Kaiser. Why, what got him so angry at this? Just the guy fell into the water. So what did he do? So somebody goes over to him and says, Your Honor, can we ask you a question? What in the world did the the guy do that got you, that you wanted to kill him? He looks, what are you talking about? I didn't want to kill it. Yeah, you took the gun and I, no, no, I wanted to show him and all of you that most people in life are using five to 10% of their capabilities. Again, people are quick to say can't, can't swim, can't this, can't nothing, can't everything. I wanted to show him and all of you, you saw, you saw that when, when he was put to the test, he somehow got found a way to throw him. So, you know, to, I wasn't going to shoot. Of course I wasn't going to shoot him. I just, I knew, I knew, I saw him. He was no baby. I knew he could, he could do it. And therefore I, I showed it to all of you. These are stories that I heard from this rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Rosen, as a teenager. And again, if a person hears these things and, and realizes that this is Torah, this is Hashem teaching us how to live right, a person lives a much better life than chas v'shalom, people who grow up without this information and without without these tools, without these tools to know. Because in those days, 50 years ago when I met this rabbi, there were challenges. Today, there's a hundred times more challenges. Kids growing up today have incredible challenges. And if we don't give them the tools, if we don't teach them a healthy way, the right way, and now we'll shift into Chanukah. The word Chanukah means Chinuch. Chinuch means basic education, starting education. What are we doing? What are we doing on Chanukah? Fire. What's wrong with marshmallows? What's wrong with cotton candy? I mean, if this is a holiday, holidays should be sweet, should be enjoyable. What are we doing? Fire. We're, so, I'm, I'm so, we're lighting a candle. It's cute but it's still fire. And we know that when the Jews became a nation, when we stood at Mount Sinai, again, were they giving out cotton candy there? No, it says fire, fire. The whole mountain was on fire. What's all of this about? What, what, what's, Hashem is so impressed with fire. What's the message? What's he trying to show us? There's a pasuk, Reshit Chochmah Yirat Hashem. The beginning, the beginning of education in life is fear, respect. Yir'ah, yir'ah means fear, yir'ah means respect. Now fear, we know there are hundreds or maybe thousands of books written today about how fear is a terrible thing. Fear, anxiety, people die, that die from fright. There's an expression to die from fright, or at least it could shorten a person's life, right? Fear, anxiety shortens people's lives. The answer is that's when the fear is misdirected. When a person is afraid of things that they shouldn't be afraid of, 
that kind of fear harms a person. When a person has healthy fear, kosher fear, it, it doesn't detract, it adds life to a person. There's a pasuk, Yirat Hashem Tosif Yamim. Fear of Hashem adds days. Kid gets up in the morning, the alarm goes off, 7.30, looks at the alarm, I'm a little tired. I think I'm just going to stay in bed a little longer. So I'll get to work a little later. The, no big thing, the work isn't going to run away. Falls asleep, gets up 8.30, gets to work 9.30, 10 o'clock. The boss says, where, where were you? When you where were you? I'm here. You, you weren't here at 9 o'clock. I know, I, I, so I came a little late. Do it again, and you're out of a job. And the person was looking for a job for three months or six months to get a job, that, that kind of thing. If a person has that element in their life, that they know there are consequences Again, not life is not free. It's not free ride. There's reward and there's punishment. There's reward and there's consequences. A person has that, then when they get up and they're feeling a little tired, so what? Big deal. Get up and do it. You can do it. You're not a baby. You're not a marshmallow. You're a human being. Hashem's, when Hashem created man, he said man is superior. Lions, tigers, everything in the world is beneath a human being. Nothing comes close to a human being. The highest level of creation. Hashem said when he created Adam, I want you to rule. I want you to be over everything else in this world. Everything in this world is subservient to you. So again, we have that ability but if a person doesn't realize it, and if they're not educated properly to start with this yir'ah, if a person starts with yir'ah, it can lead to ahava. The Hebrew word yir'ah, yud resh aleph hey, the second half of the word yir'ah is the first half of the word ahava, love. Ahava means love. Here again, in a relationship, husband and wife, people say fallen people, they fell in love. People fell in love, and then six months later, three years later, they're divorced. So they one killed the other. You know, all kinds of you know the, the current news that we hear on on. I just on the news on the way here in Far Rockaway, not in Harlem, Far Rockaway. Five people dead, two police officers wounded, a family feud, some kind of family thing. They don't have the clear information yet. You know, but this is not the Jewish black Far Rockaway. You know, black lives, black lives, right? Five people dead, five members of family dead, two police officers. One had his neck slashed, the other one this. And they're going to find out soon what this family feud was all about. Here again, the, 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 there isn't a healthy foundation. A healthy foundation is yir'ah, which leads to ahava. Yir'ah means a respect and a recognition of fear of consequences person has a wife, a person has a husband, a person has a child, a parent. If that relationship breaks, loses, everyone loses in most cases. Everyone loses. It's not that anyone feels, so what? Get rid of this, get rid of my wife, get rid of my husband, and, and, and I'll have a better life. A lot of people can testify that that's not necessarily the case, that sometimes it pays to invest a little bit more in the relationship and to treat the other person with respect and with and and maybe maybe you'll get you'll get back something in exchange something good and positive in exchange. So on Hanukkah we see an interesting thing: fire, fire, and fear go together in the Torah. When it speaks about the Jews receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai, it says Kiyareta mipnei haesh. You were afraid of the fire. The, the mountain was on fire at the time. And again, Hashem did this to teach us this lesson that Hashem said to the Jewish people, I love you. And the Jewish people said to Hashem, we love you. And Hashem said, it's great. It's great. It's wonderful. But we need another component in the cake. We have baking soda. We have vanilla. We have cinnamon. We have this. If we leave out the flour, it, it's not going to be such a great cake. And the flower, F-L-O-U-R, is yir'ah, respect. Respect, knowing that there's consequences. You cross the line, people driving on the highway. Those signs are there, check, speed check by radar. Some people read that, and some people know. My friend got a ticket, his license was suspended, can't drive anymore. 
or a $500 or $5,000 fine or an accident, that kind of thing. Those things contribute to, to us behaving in a normal way, you know, in a, in a healthy manner. So on Hanukkah, we see an interesting thing. Fire, fear, we said, usually destroys. It shortens a person's life. On Hanukkah, they, had a, they found a small amount of oil, a one-day supply of oil. The Greeks had defiled all the oils in the Beit HaMikdash. They had no oil to light the, the, the menorah in, in the Holy Temple. And they found this small vial of oil that was either a one-day supply or according to some less than a day supply. They put a match to it. They put fire to it. What happened? It increased its lifespan. Fire, usually the fire would eat up the oil. Here, the fire increased that little bit of oil now was expanded to burn for eight days to teach us this lesson that there is something called yir'ah. There's a holy fear, a holy respect, which not only doesn't it shorten a person's life, it increases a person's life. A person who knows the consequences, they'll get up earlier in the morning. They will get up early. They will do what they need to do to be successful, to have a good, happy, fulfilling life. Today, again, we see so many. I hear it nine out of ten places. I hear it. Kid is not motivated. Not mo not motivated. Are they normal? Yeah, 100% not, but not. Why not? Why not? Because they never knew, they were never shown that if you give, you get. They were never shown that kind of thing. They were always shown to, to get free. You, you, you get, you just get, you just receive. So they never learned that concept. And there was never a concept of you don't show up at a certain time, you lose. You miss, The plane is not going to wait for you. An airplane is not going to wait for you. People who, there are people who, it's it's normal for them to always be late. Oh, it's, it's a norm. I had a relative once who was known this thing and got away with it, you know, 50, 100 times. One time they were traveling from Brooklyn to the Catskills for Shabbat, as many people did. And they left a little late and et cetera, et cetera. And they ended up leaving the car on the highway and having to walk 15 miles or something like that, coming into the bungalow, wherever it was, at 12 o'clock at night, Friday night. So, so did it pay? Did it pay all the other times that I came late and, and I, I got by? I was able to get, was, was it the right thing or wasn't the right thing? Any questions? Please. So I'd say something, was it? I don't know. So, so I can't remember grows up with this, goes to school later, he doesn't really care about stuff. Now he's at the age where he wants to start doing this. How am I going to, how does someone impose themselves the fear? Like, like, I could still wake up late and probably nothing will happen, and I'll be fine. How do, how do I make myself consequences? How do I go about doing this? Good question. Very good question. The answer is to learn Torah. Hashem, Hashem wrote a book. Hashem gave us a book. It's called the Book of Life. The book that defines good living, good living. Person reads the Torah. They read the stories in the Torah. They read the laws in the Torah. And they, they read about these things. They read about that, that being late, that when it comes to praying, for example, Shachrit. There are many people, Shachrit is 7 o'clock, 7.05, 7.10, so there are people walking in. Most of them don't know that if you learn Torah, the Torah tells us, that when Shachrit is 7 o'clock, Hashem comes 6.30. Hashem, the divine spirit of Hashem is there 6.30. Whoever comes between 6.30 and 7 has a private audience with Hashem. Literally, private audience with Hashem. Could you imagine? A friend of mine, and I, I think I can mention his name here, Ronnie Safdie, I think some of you know him, at one time had a beautiful store in Manhattan, sold very expensive things. And one of the things that he wanted to have in his store was a picture of him with the president of the United States. I mean, if you have a picture, a photo up with the president, then you're somebody, you're, you're something. So he registered for this. It cost 15 grand. This is when Ronald Reagan was president. How many years ago is that? 30 years ago? Approximately. He registered, he paid $15,000. 
He had to wait three months or four months for the Secret Service to check him out to see if they're going to allow this guy to be in a room with the President of the United States for five minutes, five minutes. He wasn't allowed to initiate any conversation. He wasn't allowed to ask any question or anything. If the president says something to you, you can respond. And sure enough, he did it. He got it. After it was over, he told our rabbi about this. Our rabbi, Rabbi Michal Dorfman, Israeli, told him about this whole experience. And the rabbi smiled, smiled. 15,000, wait three months or four months, five minutes, and can't ask for anything. And, and I get to speak with the one who... And Ronald Reagan, where is he today? He's underground. He's buried. And four, three years later, he was no longer president. He went back to being a Hollywood actor or whatever he was. you know. And, and a Jew is given the privilege to speak to the creator of the world, to Hashem himself, directly. No secret service, no appointment necessary, nothing. no 15,000. Walk into shul. Come in a few minutes early. You have a photo op with Hashem, literally. A person learns that and learns other things in the Torah, and you discover, hey, there's a better way to live. My father, I'm not, usually I don't share personal stories, but my father passed away about 40 days ago, approximately, I'm in the year now, and he lived to the age of 103 and a half. And when people came to visit me for the Shiva, almost everyone asked, did you ever ask your father, like, what was his secret? How did he get to live so long? And the answer is, I didn't. I really didn't. But they said, do you know? Do you remember? I don't know. And one of the people who came, a rabbi who came, said there's a story in the Gemara. The Gemara says that there was a rabbi who traveled out of Israel. He traveled to Babel, to Iraq. And he saw people there that were living to a ripe old age. And he said, how could this be? The Torah says, we say in the Shema, Leman yirbu that you will live a long life in Israel. In Israel. It's a pasuk in the Torah. They're not in Israel. How are they living a long life? But then it says, he looked, he observed, and he saw that they come to shul early. They come to shul early, and they stay late. And he said, I got it. I got it. That justifies, that gives them the ability, that gives them credit as if they were living in Israel. Yeah, that kind of zechut. Uh, that's how they live a long life. My father was never on time, for sure. Never on time. 15 minutes early, 20 minutes. Not, don't, come to, don't walk into shul when they're saying Ashley or they're saying starting the Kaddish. What are you, nuts? You, you're going to see, to see Hashem. If you were going to, to meet Warren Buffett to get a check from him, and he said, be there 12, would you be there 12 o'clock or would you be there 5 to 12 or, or 11 o'clock? Would you be there the night before, take a hotel room the night before to make sure that there's no chance in the world that you're going to be late, right? Make sense? Go ahead, please. So I understand what you're saying, but there's always consequences that it's kind of like you're testing that show and then the reward is not always instant. So for a kid who's... Okay, I'm gonna get up early. Let's see what happens. Nothing happens. His life was better waking up at eleven o'clock on Sunday. Very good question. Very good question. That's the basis of our religion, and that's the basis of life in this world. And that's the mistake. That's the tragedy that we are living today. This term, instant gratification, instant gratification. Press the button on the computer. If I get an instant response, good. If not, I need a new computer. Press the button. If my wife responds immediately, good. If not, time for a new wife. You know, instant gratification. Are you crazy? Are you nuts? That's how Hashem made the world? A, a woman gets married. And, and she's starting to feel, a couple of months after marriage, she's starting to feel stomach pains. And she tells her husband, my stomach is hurting me a little. And he says, hey, maybe you're PG. She says, no, nah, no, nah, it's just stomach. Let's check. They check. They do a test. The test comes out, you know, real positive. Another two, three weeks go by. Nothing happens. She says, I guess the test was wrong. Look, no baby. No baby. She starts jumping and lifting heavy. We, we know what's going to happen, right? 
Does does a baby happen in nine minutes? Could Hashem, Hashem created the world and everything in it in six days. What happened? He forgot how to do it. He slowed down in his old age and now it takes nine months to produce one baby, nine months? Why? Why, why, why? That the why is because Hashem knows that we need to learn this lesson, that important things in life are not instantaneous. Prayer, prayer, which is the most important thing in many ways. The Gemara says, it's among the most important things in religion and in life. And people don't take it seriously. They don't realize how special it is. Moshe Rabbeinu, the, the holiest Jew that ever lived, who Hashem said, I love him, I love him. Did he get instantaneous response? He prayed 40 days to get a no from Hashem, to get his first no. Then he went another 40 days and Hashem said, I forgive them completely. So if a kid doesn't learn that, if kids are not educated, then you're right. You're right. I got up, I went to shul, and no miracle. I didn't, I, my daddy didn't buy me a, a Ferrari, and I, I didn't get all the good things that, that I wanted in life. So I guess there's no Hashem. You guessed wrong. You guessed wrong. There is a Hashem. He's live and well. And if he would operate that way, there'd be no free choice. If a person would see immediate response, if when you do something good, you get rewarded on the spot, would there be anybody that wouldn't do those good things? No. So that can't, that's not the, that's not the system. That's not the way it works. Whereas the Satan, the other side, who's offering poison, who's offering drug, every type of poison in the world, every type of, so you would think he's at a total disadvantage. What normal person is going to choose to do bad things, to do things that are going to hurt them? Excuse me? Jesus. Exactly. <clears throat> we got to give him some kind of a tool to operate so that he's in the ballpark. His tool is, in, what he's offering is instant gratification. Smoke this thing or take this thing, you're going to feel good immediately. He doesn't tell you that a couple of hours later, you're going to feel terrible. You know, much what doesn't tell you that part. So this is why the word Chanukah has two parts to it. Two parts to it. The word Chana, Chana, which is a name of one of the very holy women, where all of our, all the laws of prayer that we have, the Amidah, how we pray the Amidah, we learn from this woman's prayer. She had a sister, they, they lived together. Her sister had children. She didn't. She suffered terribly. She prayed and prayed until she won. She hit a home run. She was zuchet to have Shmuel Hanavi, one of the greatest prophets, the, the prophet who anointed King David, was her child. You know, one of the greatest Sadiqim of all time. And we learn all the laws of prayer from her. So the word Chana is, refers to prayer. The remaining letters in the word Chanukah Archaf Vav, 26, which is the name of Hashem. Hashem's name, Hashem's most basic name, Yud Vavke, is 26. The Torah is called the book of the names of Hashem. Every word in the Torah is some shape or form of the name of Hashem. The Arizal shows this, many different cases of words where you would never imagine. And this word is a, a particular formula of the name of Hashem. So the word Chanukah is comprised of two parts, Torah and prayer. Torah and prayer. That's the winning combination in Judaism. That's basic Judaism, and that's a winning combination. Rabbi Nachman tells us on page one, when a person is praying, you're asking, if I approach my father, if I approach a businessman, and I ask him for something, he can say, I can't. Can't. I don't have it. I can say can't. Hashem cannot say can't. There's nothing that Hashem can't do. There's nothing that Hashem can't provide. There's nothing that Hashem cannot fix. Nothing. So now how, how do I get how do I get into the good graces of Hashem? Is there something I could do that makes Hashem willing, you know, to listen to me? Because there are many cases, a guy, a salesman, comes to a very wealthy guy at a company, and he shows up at the door, you know, and they, 
the secretary, and the guy looks through the window of his office, and he sees this guy, and he tells his secretary, I don't know what this guy wants, but tell him I'm not here, tell him I'm in Florida, tell him I died, I, whatever, I don't want to see this guy. What do you mean? You never met the guy before? I don't have to meet him. I see his face. I, I see enough. I don't want to, I don't want to hear what this person has to say, that kind of thing. We know there are cases like that, right? And there's the opposite of that. There's a concept of chen. Chen means grace. Grace, charm. The Torah tells us about Queen Esther. Queen Esther. That she wasn't, Achashverosh made a beauty pageant. Miss World. He was searching for Miss World. He wanted to marry Miss World. And he had all the girls available to him, everybody. <clears throat> and they took Esther, Esther to the palace. And the Gemara tells us she wasn't the beauty of the world, but she had chen. Vatihi Esther no said chen erha. Anyone that looked at her said, well, people from, from Mexico looked at her and said, she's Mrs. Mexico. People from China looked at her and said, now we know Chinese women don't look the same as Mexico. They're different. What's considered beautiful in China <coughs> is not necessarily beautiful in another country. She had a magic ingredient like the man. Everything, everywhere. Any person from any part of the world looked and said, she is the beauty, she is our beauty, that kind of thing. She had this quality called chen. How does a person acquire chen? The Gemara says that a person who studies Torah properly, the Torah places this chen, the Torah is called Ayelet Ahavim, the Torah places this quality of chen on a person so that a person who has this and now they come to ask Hashem for something, Hashem will be much more readily willing to listen to what the person is asking for. And again, Hashem has unlimited resources in terms of Hashem. Nothing Hashem can't provide. If it's good for the person, Hashem will give it to the person. Instantly, rare, rare. Sometimes there are cases. There are cases even better than that. There's an expression in the Torah, and, and we'll, we'll close with this. This is an incredible finale. There are prayers that are answered that take time. There are prayers that are answered immediately. And there are prayers that are answered before you ask for it. Before I ask for it? Yes, there's an expression in the Torah, Terem Nikra'u Va'ani Emet. Hashem says, before they ask me, before they call out to me, I respond. Because don't forget, Hashem knows what's in your mind, what's in your heart. So how do I connect to that? The Arizal says, the Ariya Kadosh says, I'll, I'll tell you, it's a pasuk, we say it every day. In Ashrei, we say, Karov Hashem Lechol Korav, Hashem is close to all those who call out to him. To all those who call out to him with truth, with honesty. That's a contradiction. Make up your mind. Which is it? Is he close to everybody? Or is he only close to those who call out to him? We know emet is not a simple thing. We are living in a world that's called Olam HaSheker. This world, there's a lot of people who are not 100% honest, who are not 100% sincere, sincere, right? So make up your mind, which is it? That the same Pasuk says he's close to everyone and he's close to those, to the limited audience. Who, well, the Arizal says, no, no, no. If you, if you know your Hebrew, Korav is present tense. Yikre'uhu is future tense. Present tense. When a person prays to Hashem right now at 1031, I'm praying to Hashem, Hashem is close to me. A Jew opens up their mouth, they open their heart to speak to Hashem. Hashem is there. Hashem is there. Those people, though, who have an honest relationship with Hashem, who have this quality of emet, they're honest, they're really sincere. Hashem is close. He's close to them before when they will call out to him. Yikru is future tense. Hashem knows that at four o'clock today I'm going to be praying mincha, and He knows that during mincha my wife is going to tell me 
that we have to prepare for, we're having a Hanukkah party, we need to buy stuff, and I don't have money. I don't have money to buy it with. And I wasn't aware of it nine o'clock in the morning, but she made me, and, and Hashem who knows what's coming, he knows that at four o'clock, I'm gonna pray with be'emet, with honesty and sincerity, Hashem already provided, there's a check in the mail or something's coming that's going to provide the solution even before I ask for it. There's a story with Rabbi Natanza, one of Rabbi Natan's closest students. His father was a businessman and a Talmud Chacham. Father was very, very learned and he was a partner. There were three partners that owned major like department stores in a few cities, in the city of Breslov, in the city of Bardichev, and another city, major business. And they wanted, the father respected his son's learning Torah, but he wanted him also to get involved in the business so that he'll be able to provide for his family, even though the father could easily take care of the son's financial needs. And this son was going to grow up to be one of the nuclear lights in the Jewish people. He wrote Likut Halachot, 4,000 pages of incredible Torah and everything. And you know, he taught many students and everything. The father didn't realize it at the time. And the father was pushing and pushing him. And at one point, Rabbi Natanzal said he was praying to Hashem and saying, Hashem, you know that there's so much I still need to learn. And, and I want to learn. I have the, have the brain power for it and, and I have the ability and I'll have the ability to teach if I'll be given the opportunity, you know, and he writes that a couple that this was sometime during the day, three o'clock, four o'clock. He found that afterwards that at eight o'clock that morning, his father's business partners met with his father and said to him, what are you, what are you making this, your son's life miserable for? Cut the baloney. Take, we're taking back the merchandise. His father given a merchandise to son. Tell him to give us back the merchandise. We'll sell it. We'll give him the profit. Leave him alone. This kid is really qualified to learn. Leave him alone. And he said he saw this with his own eyes, that here he was praying, praying Hashem. And he didn't know that already a couple hours before that, Hashem provided the solution. There was a meeting where a decision was made that right now this kid doesn't have to, or right now this kid could learn, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I have a friend in the community. I don't know. I don't know, I'll see, maybe as we tell the story, I'll mention the name, who's, who has few children, grew up, the, the father was not Shomer Shabbat for many years, and many people spoke to him, tried to convince him to keep Shabbat. He had a store, a retail store, in one of the best hotels in Manhattan, and everybody knows the main business day is Saturday, Shabbat, you know, couldn't, nobody could convince him. At one point, he came to Israel, and he met a rabbi in Israel, and the rabbi told him, try it. Try one Shabbat. No commitment. No commitment. Try one Shabbat. See how you like it. He tried it. He stayed home. He didn't drive to the city that day. And I spoke to him afterwards, and I said, how was it? He said, it was fabulous. I sat at the meet with the family, and I went to show. I sat. With the, it was fabulous. And I didn't ask him, what about next? I didn't say anything. Sure enough, that was the last time he drove to work on Shabbat. Mm. However, the store was open because the, the lease with the hotel, they weren't allowed to close it, you know, for, for Shabbat. A, a year or two later, he says to me, Rabbi, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. We're closing the store for Shabbat. Mm. He said, they could throw us out legally. They can, you know, I, but we're going to do it. Sure enough, they did it. And they stayed in the hotel for another year or two. Or, you know, Baruch Hashem. All of the other kids were modern Orthodox. One of his kids went to Hillel here in Jersey and became an astronaut, an astronaut in Torah. Started loving learning Torah. He would learn with, after school, he would learn with a rabbi, this, that, and he was growing, you know, growing. And the father says to the son, you know, and he's finishing high school, and the father says, what are you going to do now? Are you going to college or to work? He says, I want to go to Israel to learn for a year. The father says, that's not one of the choices. You know, every there's two choices in life. You go to work or you go to college. I'm saying there's no. And the father calls me and he says, you know, my son is, I said, can I ask you a question? Is he lazy? Is he lazy? Is it like he's trying to get out of work? He's trying to, no, not, a, this kid is studying. Whenever I see him, he's studying. He's like, so what's the big deal? A year, what's going to happen? What? What's going to, he's 18 years old now. 
Okay, okay. Goes to Israel for a year, starts off in one school. It's not good enough, switches to a better school, and he's doing great. The year's over, he wants another year. And the father says to me, uh, he, he wants to stay for another year. I said, how's he doing? Is it, he's doing well. I hear, I spoke to the rabbi, he's doing great. So what's the big deal? It's the big deal. Stays for a second year. Now, at one point, the father calls me and says, Rabbi, can I ask you a question? Sure. He says, let's say right now, if he gets married and he's, I can support him right now. I don't know it's going to be five years from now. Do I know? I asked him again, is he lazy? Is this kid lazy? Is he looking for a free ride? No, definitely not. So he'll do whatever he needs to do. If he can learn Torah, he'll learn Torah. If he has to go to work, he'll go to work. What's the, what, what's the big deal? What? Okay, okay. The kid comes back from Israel. He goes to Lakewood. He goes to Lakewood. One of the wealthiest families in the community. One of the wealthiest families in the Syrian community here, where it's a couple of brothers who owned a, a tremendous electronics business. And one of the brothers at one point said, see you guys, I'm going to learn Torah. They said, great. It's nice to have a brother who's going to learn. You're a full partner. We're not changing the deal in any way. As long as Hashem blesses us, you get the full money as if you were. And he went to learn. That person heard about this kid and decided he has a daughter and he wants this kid to marry his daughter. When my friend heard about this, he, he was in tears. He couldn't believe because he thought he's a big shot. He's wealthy. He's like a, a little squirt compared to the father-in-law. The father who wants to, you know, the father-in-law said to the boy, if you want to learn for the next hundred, if you're going to be, if you'll do well for the next hundred years, you're covered. You know, money is not an issue. Happily married. Where did they move? They moved to Lakewood, to a basement apartment, a basement apartment in Lakewood, because he wanted to be near the, now this is a kid who grew up in Deal, New Jersey, swimming pool, all the good things. And, he, and normal, not crazy, a normal healthy kid gets along beautifully with all of his siblings who are not, not like him at all. Modern, very much, loves his siblings, loves his parents, come, you know, everything. Went to live, lived in the basement for like two, three years until they had a couple of kids. And the father-in-law said, enough of this stuff. A house, a beautiful house, close to the yeshiva also, doing fabulous, doing well. What, what's the message? The message is that there's a Hashem. There's a Hashem running the world. It's not me. It's not you. It's Hashem. If a person tries to do the right thing, and if a person plays by the rules, usually they can be successful. There are times that, that all there are a lot of factors that go into it. But we, we are taught Hanukkah, we light eight candles. The eight candles, five candles are the five books of the Torah, the five Chumashim. The three candles are the three prayers. Shachrit min Haravid. Hashem says, I'm giving, you a, 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 I'm giving you Judaism. I'm giving you a way to live that works. It really works. If you try to live by these standards, if you try to pray regularly and to learn Torah, each person on their level, on their level, you'll have a good life. Instant gratification, that's not what's being offered. Sometimes it'll take time. But at the end, you'll look back and say, wow, wow. There, there are people who go the instant gratification way, and then at the end, they feel very sorry. They realize they made a big mistake going for the quick kill, you know, going for the quick buck. And all people, a lot of people in jail are, are in jail because they wanted the quick buck. They couldn't wait. They couldn't wait to earn it in a good, healthy way. Should be so hard to absorb all the advice of the Torah, and, and and Hashem should turn on the lights of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, there were two miracles that took place. One miracle was the miracle of the oil. The other miracle was that the Jewish people were a minority, a minority. And the world power at that time, the Greek kingdom, wanted to eliminate them, wanted to eliminate Judaism, no Judaism. And Hashem made a miracle that the minority defeated the majority. We should be zochet. Once again, we saw it at the Six Day War. We saw the Jewish people saw that when Hashem is with us, there could be three hundred million. There could be a billion Muslims. That doesn't mean anything. If Hashem is with us, 
there's no power in the world that could, could challenge the Jewish people. We should be zochet to see the land of Israel and the Jewish people all over the world thrive. Babies being born every day, kids getting bar mitzvah, kids getting mad, like we see now, despite with everything going on, Baruch Hashem, there are shuls in, in the Breslov community alone, there are 15 shuls under construction now. Mm-hmm. 15 shuls in the middle of building, the yeshivas are growing, you know, the, 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 the religious world is expanding, whether it's in Deal, New Jersey. I remember coming out here 40 years ago, there was one synagogue, there was the Deal, it's still called the Deal Synagogue, right? How did you get that name, Deal Synagogue? Because it was the only synagogue in town, right? Today there's 30 or 40 synagogues and Kolel. So we see the long term that, that those who are willing to wait, you know, and, and stay with it, stay with the program, they get a much, much better result than those who went for the instant gratification. to see the the coming of Mashiach. Amen.